I'm Philip. As I said, I lead the, lead the church here, and I'm also the owner of the nutter of a two-year-old that you saw uh, before you. He managed to headbutt me, actually, during worship somehow, which is the first time I've ever been headbutted in a, during a, a church service. Um, and thank you so much if you've come along this morning to kind of celebrate with us. Like, it's great to celebrate as families. It's great to celebrate uh, as, uh, as a church family. And it's great if you're not part of this church or church is new to you or you've come along as our friends or our family or our loved ones. Thank you so much for coming. It really means a lot to us. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, I want to tell you a story, um, not a story about Kate Middleton coming to our house. That is for another time. I want to tell you a story that Jesus Christ told, given that we're in church. He told a story about a family 2,000 years ago. He told a story about a father and two sons. And uh, it goes something like this. In fact, when Charles Dickens was asked, what's the greatest story of all time? He said it was this one. So no pressure, but it goes like this. Uh, A couple of thousand years ago, there was a father who had two sons. They lived in the Middle East in the first century, and one day, the younger son came to the father and pretty much said, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead because I want my money, I want my inheritance, and frankly, I wish you were dead because I want it now. And remarkably, given the context of that time, the father allowed the son to make his choice and gave him the inheritance, gave him his share of the money. And off this young son went to a faraway city, and surprise, surprise, he blitzed the whole lot on some some pretty wild living, it's fair to say. And after a while, he had spent every single last penny, nothing left. And it was kind of a perfect storm, because as he spent every last penny, so a famine hit the place that he was in. So he's got no money, there's no food really to be had, so kind of he resorts to having to work basically for nothing in a pig farm so he can just eat the food that the pigs have. And given that he's a Jewish young man, that's a particularly humiliating thing to do. So there he is. He finds himself kind of destitute, poverty-stricken, starving, and pretty much humiliated. And I'll I'll let Jesus pick up the story in a moment from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. But at that moment in that pig farm, this young guy kind of has a moment, as you can imagine. He's like, this is ridiculous. Well, I may as well just go back home. Like, obviously, my dad's going to want nothing to do with me. I've brought such shame, not least in the first century Middle East, on my family and on my community. Obviously, I'll be out of the family, but maybe he'll give me a job as a servant or something, and I'll be better off than I am now. So he makes his way back home, and this is how the story continues. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and and shoes on his feet, and and bring the fattened calf, and kill that, and let us eat and celebrate. Because this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was 
devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. He's found. So Charles Dickens said, and I guess Charles Dickens knew a thing or two about telling stories. He said that was the greatest story ever told. But interestingly, the people who first heard that story, they thought it was the worst story ever told. In fact, they they killed Jesus for telling these kinds of stories and saying these kinds of things. But the interesting thing is, the reason that people hated the story at the time, and some like Dickens have loved the story ever since, is actually the same. It's because they've understood the same central message of the story that they've either hated it or they've loved it. And in about 50 minutes or so, I guess you can decide what you think of this story. But the central message that I think both, if you like, types of people got hold of is this. What Jesus is trying to say through this story is that God is this. He's a father who runs towards those who run from him. God's a father who runs towards those who run from him. And if you're kind of completely new to church, I know a lot of you are, thank you so much for coming. I want to just invite you to consider not just whether that claim in the story stands up as, as the message of the story, but whether it stands up as the message of reality. And you can decide for yourself in a few minutes' time. So the first thing Jesus is saying is that God is a father. In Jesus' day, God was holy and like transcendent and other and judge. But he wasn't really father, certainly not in the way that Jesus depicts the father to be in the story that we've just heard. One day, Jesus' friends asked him, how should we kind of talk to God? How should we pray? How should we communicate with God? What's he like? And Jesus said, well, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Maybe you you know the prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Actually, we're going to use that prayer at the end of this little message to, to pray together if you want to. And the word that Jesus often used in his own language for father was a particularly tender one. It's the kind of word that a young child would use, not when they were headbutting their father like me, but when they were talking to them in in kind of tenderness and intimacy. And it was pretty shocking to his listeners at the time. They thought that kind of language of tender fatherhood about God was kind of like irreverent and, and presumptuous and casual. God is a father. God is a father who runs. Did you spot that in the, in the passage, in the reading? When the son comes into view, having been away for however long he's been away, Jesus said, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Which I guess must have mean that his father must have been watching out for him. Like every day. To spot him on the horizon. And he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Again, this is really quite shocking for Jesus' first century Middle Eastern audience, particularly the bit about the running. Like they're already shocked. Like we, I think, think about the younger son coming home. Oh, that's kind of sweet. That's nice. They were appalled at that. As far as they were concerned, in that context, in that culture, that younger son should have been thrown out of the family at best, beaten at worst, and never been seen of again. So they can't believe the father hasn't done that. They definitely can't believe that when he's seen on the horizon, the father would run towards him and embrace him and kiss him. It was really quite shocking. One Middle Eastern scholar said this. 
Traditional Middle Easterners wearing long robes do not run in public. They never have. To do so would be deeply humiliating. But this, this dad doesn't care. He doesn't care. He just wants to get to his son. He just wants to embrace him. Just wants to love him. When I was um, about seven or eight years old, my family and I we went on a holiday to Devon. And we were on the, the beach and I was swimming away in, the, in the, the sea as you do, or paddling at least. And I can remember my dad saying to me, you're okay here, Philip, in this little bit of the sea. But if you go any further, the sand like shelves away really quite sh- sharply. And you'll go from like, kind of like two feet of water to sort of ten feet of water. And obviously I wasn't much of a swimmer because he felt like you need not, not, not to do that. He said, stay where you are, but don't go any further because you're going to be in trouble. So of course I exercised my choice and free will by ignoring all those instructions and making my way out into the water. And sure enough, the sand did exactly that. It shelved away really suddenly and kind of two feet of water went to about 10 feet of water. I couldn't feel the sand beneath my feet. I was clearly a terrible swimmer and I started to really panic. I can remember it in my, my mind's eye now, the kind of water bubbling up above the, the mouth and the nose, kind of beginning to sort of choke and splutter and wave your hands around, really starting to panic. And I looked out across the beach, hoping that somebody uh, would be seeing me. And I saw my family, and my dad, as ever, was reading the Times supplement of the, sport, of, of, of the sports pages. But he looked up, and he saw me. Now, what do you think he did? Stand up and cross his arms. He's here, by the way, so you can check the story with him afterwards. <laughs> what do you think he did? Stand up and cross his arms and say, told you, son, you're on your own now. You got yourself into that mess, you can get yourself out of that mess. No. He ran. He ran. He ran across the beach. Like if he had an orange Baywatch life aid, it would have been the perfect scene. He ran across this beach, dived into the water. I can remember his arm coming under my, under my chin and being dragged out onto the sand and flopped fairly unceremoniously, tearful and spluttering and scared and relieved and a bit embarrassed all at the same time. And what I remember from that, as well as being seen and noticed, as well as being rescued by a running father, I also remember the joy of going home. I wasn't left to you know, think about what I'd done for the night. We went home. I don't think they killed the fattened calf. We had fish and chips, I think. <laughs> and the joy of going home. I began the day as a much-loved son. I finished the day as a much-loved son. God is a father who runs towards those who run from him. Of course, not all fathers, let's be honest, not all fathers are uh, kind and humble. Not all fathers are self-sacrificial and brave. Not all fathers are strong, and certainly none are perfect. But God is. He's a father just like that, and much, much more. And I, and I guess for just a little sidebar, for those of us as families and who are perhaps are dads or would love to be dads, that's the kind of dad we would aspire to be. We're not there yet. But it's those kinds of fathers that in this church family we'd love to see raised more and more. God is a father who runs towards those who run from him. And there are many ways to, to run from God. I've tried a few of them. One of them is the younger son's way. Did you notice how he runs from, from the father, how he runs from God? I guess you could say his approach is basically to kind of throw off any moral authority, I suppose. That would, he would see that as an oppressive, restrictive thing on his life. So he throws it off. He, he runs away. He, I guess he thinks that true happiness or fulfillment is to be found in having as many kind of amazing experiences as possible. He probably thinks that he needs to find his own truth, live that truth out, be true to himself, and that will bring 
happiness and fulfillment and joy to him. And let's be honest. I mean, this is church. We can be honest. I'm assuming he had a good time along the way. He would have had a cracking time, I'm sure, along the way. But how did it end? I don't know whether it's 10 days that he went through the money or 10 years. But it ends and he is just empty. Totally empty for him. He's kind, of, he's kind of drowning, I guess you could say, to borrow my analogy, in his pigsty. It's like sand through his fingers. The, the comedian Russell Brand, who I think knows a thing or two about wild living, he said this, here is a postcard from the other side. Fame, luxury items, and glamour are not real and cannot solve you. Whether it's a pair of shoes, a stream of orgies, a movie career, or global adulation, They're just passing clouds of imaginary pleasure. If that is in any way you this morning, maybe it's not the full Russell Brand younger son version, but it might be. If that is you in any sense that you think, I've I've just given myself heart and soul to making life work and making it satisfying, and it's now empty. (laughs) I'm kind of at the end of myself. If that is you in any way, I'm really glad that you're here because God would say to you, I love you. I really do. I see you. I run towards you. Come home. And notice the father doesn't run towards someone who's got his life sorted out. He's dusted himself down and got his life sorted out. It just comes as he is. And notice too, what's the son been doing all this time? Partying. What does the father throw for him? Party. See, often I think we think that God's a kind of killjoy. He's out to stomp on our pleasure. He's not. He's out to bring us into pleasure. Pleasure that lasts. You see the scene in that story? Dancing, partying, singing, celebrating. God is a father. He runs towards those who run from him. There's another way to run from God. It's the older brother's way. He said, don't miss the older brother, right, in the story. The younger brother gets all the attention. That's the story I'm called, the prodigal son. The older brother, he's just as significant, if not more so, for Jesus' storytelling. And I guess you could say it like this. The younger brother runs from God by being really bad. The older son runs from God by being really good. They both run from God. This older son, he's the guy, he's the girl, we all know them. He's done everything right in life. He's Mr. Respectable, Mr. Well-Behaved. Good job, works hard, raises a well-adjusted family, does the right thing. And when he learns that his reprobate younger brother has got this incredible welcome home, he is furious. Did you, did you sense that? How furious he is. You never did anything like this for me. And I've worked for you, served you, obeyed you. See, Jesus knew. He's pretty good at discerning the state of the human condition. He knew there's also a certain type of person who, and I'm paraphrasing, but in some ways the core belief is if I live a good life, a right life, a moral life, a respectable life, life, or maybe even God, will, will pay me back. Life will work. It should work because I'm doing the right thing. And Jesus discerned that. And that's how he portrayed this older brother. And those kinds of people, I'll be honest, they're often found in churches. They're often the religious people. And that's who Jesus was talking to. That was his audience at the time, religious people. Because we... Us church-going folk, we can be particularly vulnerable to thinking, if I do the right thing, the religious stuff, the moral stuff, God will surely owe me, and I'll get what I really want from him. I love the fact that the father, do you notice, he he still runs towards the older brother. 
Not literally, but the text says that he entreats him. I guess that means he implores him to come in to the home. It says he calls him son. It says, come on, come in from the cold. So you're so near, don't stand outside. And the son won't have it. And that's the kind of other shocking thing for the, these original listeners about this story. The really well-behaved guy, the guy that's done the right thing, the religious thing, the moral thing, he stays outside. He's not in the party. And the, the question that Jesus leaves hanging, he does it deliberately. He doesn't wrap up the story with a nice satisfactory resolution, TED Talk style. He just leaves it hanging. It's like, well, what happens next? Does he stay out there? Kind of bitter and cross and proud? Or does he come in and enjoy this amazing party? We don't know. That's why it's so shocking. Because people that first heard it thought, well, of course he's one of the ones that's in. And Jesus is leaving the question hanging, I think. is Will that older brother, will he humble himself? And will he admit that underneath his impressive exterior, he's got a cold heart? His life seems so impressive. His credentials are so good. His home looks the business. His kids are well-adjusted and doing all the right things. Got good salary. He's doing all the right stuff. But he's got a cold heart. And Jesus is wondering, are you going to humble yourself and, and admit that? Are you going to realize that actually your heart, just as much as your reprobate younger brother, yours needs warming and changing and bringing to life by the grace of God? just as much as your little brothers. See, my, um, I'll begin to finish with this. My observation from my own life uh, is this. There have been times when on, on the one hand, I've thought, I guess much like the younger brother, I've thought effectively, stuff it. I, true happiness surely is just to be found in doing what you want, when you want, how you want. And I can give you the gory details another time if you want. And it's fun at times. My experience has been, it's empty, ultimately. It's just like sand through your fingers. You just find yourself in a, if not a pigsty that dramatic, you find yourself in that context of just, I thought I had it and it's gone. Doesn't satisfy. It's been my experience, at least. And there have also been times, church pastors are very vulnerable to this one, there have also been times when I've thought, well, I, true happiness, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, satisfaction in life, it just lies, it lies in just doing the right thing. Behaving well, being religious, being moral. And if I do those things, life will work. And frankly, God will owe me, or at least life will owe me. And man, I found that to be just as empty, just as unsatisfactory. Leaves you with a cold heart. It's tell you what, it's like the older brother. It's like being just on the outside of a party, hearing the music, seeing the dancing, but just being out in the cold. And every time I've done those things, or everywhere in between, every single time, the call of God has been exactly the same to me, and it's the same to you. It's this, come home. That's always his call, is come home. God's a father. He loves to run towards those who run from him. That's why we celebrate as best we know how on this context in church life, because we believe it's a small, tiny reflection of what God invited that son into. A space of celebration, of affection, of affirmation, of joy, of meaning, and of the kind of pleasure that actually lasts. That's the invitation of Christianity. Us Christians haven't always done a great job of portraying that, but that, that's the message Jesus is trying to give. That anyone and everyone is invited to come home. God is a father. 
He runs to those who run from him. We're just going to close like this with a, with a prayer, if we may. I wonder whether, uh, if Alan and the band begin to join me. And we're going to have an opportunity, if you wish, to, to pray. I wonder if we could just put the prayer on the screen. If you remember at the beginning of this message, cast your mind back off 50, 50 minutes ago, I said that Jesus taught people how to pray by giving them this prayer. And it's a prayer that Christians for centuries have come back to time and time and time again as a means of connecting with God, a means of enjoying God and trusting in God. And so we're going to pray in a moment, just where we are, and we're going to do what we occasionally do at King's Church, which is to pray it out loud. And that's kind of something churches have done for centuries, is to speak together corporately uh, words that they believe are true and good. And we're going to, as a church, just speak out this central prayer. And if you're a Christian this morning, as many of us in church are, then this is an opportunity for us to to ground ourselves in the substance of our faith, remind ourselves that we don't trust in ourselves, we're trusting in God for his goodness, his grace. Life works when it works with him. You might not be a Christian or not be sure if you're a Christian, but you might think, I don't know enough to, I'm not making any commitments here, but I, I, I wouldn't mind taking a step towards God. If he's like this and his home is like this, I'd I would like to see if that's true. I would like to see whether this week he would meet me in some way. Then you can pray the prayer out loud as well. Just as a way of beginning to reach out and touch to God. And thirdly, in life of King Church, people around us all the time who are looking into faith, exploring spirituality, and often come to that point and think, no, I do know enough to trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the means by which I step into the family of God. And if you're you this morning, you're like, do you know what? I, I know enough. Not everything. Loads of questions, loads of doubts. But I know enough that I want to step into God's family by being forgiven for all that I've done. Then you can pray this prayer as well. So there are three ways to pray. One is a Christian. One is a, well, I'd like to know more. And one, I'd like to become a Christian. And if none of those three, none of those three things are yours, that's fine. We're just glad that you're here. You can listen along. And then when we finish praying, Ellen will just invite us to stand and we'll sing a song together uh, in, in closing. Okay, I'll start us. And for those of us that want to, let's pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.